Hey everybody, thanks for joining us. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're in week 14 of our journey through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Now, if you spend any time on social media, you'll probably be familiar with the term cancel culture. It's a phenomena that has uh, risen in its prominence in the last two or three years. And like all movements, it exists on a spectrum. So we've seen the positive use of the power of social media to deplatform or to cancel uh, people who have been misbehaving. We saw this in the case of Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, all of them cancelled uh, by the public before their sex crimes trials. Uh, and so we've seen an effective use of social media in calling people to account. We saw this again in the Me Too movement. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have people like David Shaw, who during the George Floyd protests in the US, uh, tweeted a uh, link to an academic journal which questioned the political consequences of violent and peaceful protests. And uh, David Shaw was subsequently fired from his job, uh, though the company uh, insists that it wasn't over his tweet. But the fallout from this cancel culture has, uh, has been pretty devastating for certain people. We saw this, again, high-profile case with J.K. Rowling, uh, obviously the author of the Harry Potter books. Uh, she tweeted a, a, her support for a female academic in in the UK who was um, taking a stand and saying that trans men were not in fact women, that sex is not something that you can simply determine by saying so. And she has since been, uh, the calls for her to be cancelled have been deafening, particularly on Twitter. Now, politicians have weighed in on this new movement and Barack Obama uh, called out cancel culture when he said that's not activism right rallying support on social media for this or that activity is not activism that's he says that's not bringing about change if all you're doing is casting stones you probably you're probably not going to get that far that's easy to do he said now, not to be left out of the conversation, this year, a couple of months ago, Donald Trump called out cancel culture and said it's the very definition of totalitarianism. It's completely alien to our culture, he said. Alien to our culture and our values. It has absolutely no place in the United States of America. And finally, the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal uh, journalist Peggy Noonan said social media is full of swarming political and ideological mobs. In an interesting departure from dem democratic tradition, they don't try and win the other side over. They only con condemn and attempt to silence. Now, the situation in Corinth, as Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, had a similar kind of vibe to it. There were those in the church in Corinth who were seeking to cancel Paul. They had a whole uh, strategy for 
divorcing the Corinthian Christians from Paul and from his teachings. And so in first century Corinth, the hashtag cancel Paul is trending as Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. That's a big part of the context as we've seen over and over again. Paul, Paul's need to defend himself against those who are trying to cancel him. Now we can get an insight, particularly in this chapter, into the nature of their complaint, the nature of their accusations against him, the nature of the strategy to de-platform and cancel Paul. And it's sometimes said that reading one of the New Testament letters is like listening to one side of a phone conversation. I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you have, been in a situation where you're with someone who's on the phone and you're trying to determine what the conversation is about just by hearing one side of the conversation. And that's a little bit like what we're doing here with the letter to the Corinthians, except it's even harder because the context is so removed from our own, the culture is completely different, the original language is different, and so it's even harder than that. I remember recently uh, spending an afternoon with Monica who uh, leads the Dinka language congregation and as we were doing some paperwork um, she was taking calls just tons of calls and I was listening to her except I couldn't pick up the conversation because she was speaking in Dinka sometimes Arabic and so all I could do was pick up the words that were familiar to me like Jonathan and Red Door and Bishop uh, words that are spoken in English even when the person is speaking a foreign language. And so that's a little bit like what we've got here. We need to, from a different culture, a different language, without knowing exactly what was going on in Corinth, we can deduce um, what was going on through the one side of the conversation that we hear. And many scholars actually think that in this letter, in this chapter particularly, Paul is quoting his opponents in Corinth when he refers to the things that he's defending himself from. So, for example, in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and then in quotation marks, I who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent. That seems to be one of the accusations that was made of him, that he's inconsistent, right? Bold in his letters, bold like a lion when he's writing, but when he's with us, he's meek like a lamb, that he's inconsistent. Uh, another one in verse eight, the first part of verse 8, for if I boast a little too much about our authority, another accusation leveled at him by his opponents, that he was always boasting about his authority, going around, throwing his weight around. Uh, another one, verse 10. Uh, and this is where he does directly quote, For it is said, he says, His letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak, and his public speaking amounts to nothing. The accusation was that he's unimpressive in person. Sure, he can write a letter, but when he's with us, he's, ver he's very unimpressive. And he can't preach for peanuts and another one in verse 14 for we are not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached you since we have come to you with the gospel of christ he was being accused of overextending himself overreaching pushing out of the boundaries that he should stay in geographically 
taking up positions where other people were doing ministry. And so he, he kind of quotes these four accusations that the people in Corinth, these op- opponents of his, his enemies, these super apostles that are trying to, to uh, shepherd the Corinthians away from Paul and his influence, he quotes them back to them and then seeks to defend himself. And I want to look at these four accusations and see what we can learn from them because it's pretty clear that in the 21st century, uh, Christians are going to face opposition. You are going to face opposition. There might be a situation in which because of your faith, because of the public nature of your faith, you are cancelled or people will seek to cancel you, deplatform you because of your faith. Even back in 1973, in a whole different world, 1973, J.I. Packer wrote his classic book, Knowing God. And in it, he wrote, opposition is a fact. The Christian who is not conscious of being opposed had better watch himself, for he is in danger. So let's look at these four accusations leveled at Paul this strategy to deplatform him and let's see how he responds and what we can learn from it. So first of all, number one, the accusation that he's inconsistent. We'll look at verse one and two. Now I, Paul, myself appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent. I beg you, that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving according to the flesh. This accusation of inconsistency is a tactic that's been used for years and years and centuries and millennia, a tactic used to undermine certain individuals publicly. You see this today in the whole cancel culture thing. You have old tweets, old social media posts from years gone by dredged up in order to make a case against somebody, in order to rally support for deplatforming them. Even if the person has moved on from that sentiment in the past, and it is a warning to us about what we put out there on the internet, it is eternal. It stays forever. And so we need to be careful that we don't put stuff out there that we wouldn't be uh, proud to be associated with. And it's, I mean, at one level, it's an impossible task because it doesn't take into account maturation. It doesn't take into account change of opinion. We're judged by our past in this brave new world. And this accusation of inconsistency has been leveled at Christians for time immemorial. You've heard it before. Christians are hypocrites. That's a line that's often trotted out. Christians are so hypocritical. One of the most powerful examples of this that I know of is uh, something that happened when William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist, the man who Uh, was at the forefront of the campaign to end slavery in the United Kingdom and its colonies. Uh, There was attempts on him to de-platform him, to cancel him. Constant attempts and uh, um, 
attacks made on him, particularly in Parliament, by people who stood to lose a lot of money if the slave, tra slave trade was abolished. And one example, just a visceral example of this, was recorded. It was a, a situation where one of William Wilberforce's enemies, William Cobbett, in 1823, uh, said this of him, attacking him, leveling the accusation of inconsistency at him. He said, you seem to have a great affection for the fat and lazy and laughing and dancing and singing Negroes. But never have you done one single act in favour of the labourers of this country. You make your appeal in Piccadilly, London, amongst those who are wallowing in luxuries, proceeding from the labour of the people. You should have gone to the gravel pits and made your appeal to the wretched creatures with bits of sacks hanging around their shoulders and with hay bands around their legs. You should have gone to the roadside and made your appeal to the emaciated, half-dead things who are there cracking stones to make the roads as level as a die for the tax eaters to ride on. Ride on. What an insult it is, and what an unfeeling what a cold-blooded hypocrite must he be that can send it forth. What an insult to call upon the people under the name of free British labourers to appeal to them in behalf of black slaves. When these free British labourers, these poor, mocked, degraded wretches would be happy to lick the dishes and bowls out of which the black slaves have breakfasted, dined or supped. What an attack. The accusation of hypocrisy, the accusation of inconsistency. Now, William Cobbett knew that what he said wasn't true. William Wilberforce didn't just campaign for the freedom of slaves, but he campaigned for the, the better treatment of British labourers as well. And so he wrote, William Wilberforce wrote in his diary in 1820, What a lesson it is to a man not to set his heart on low popularity when after 40 years of disinterested public service, disinterested means unbiased, when after 40 years of disinterested public service, I am believed by the bulk to be a hypocritical rascal. Oh, what a comfort it is to have to fly for refuge to a God of unchangeable truth and love. William Wilberforce found solace, found comfort in the arms of his saviour whom he loved deeply. Now Paul seeks to correct this accusation. He says in verse 1 that he's appealing to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Those two great attributes, the only ones that Jesus assigned to himself, meek and gentle, lowly, humble. 
He says he's appealing to them from that heart. And he says in in verse 9 of this passage, uh, I don't want to seem as though I am trying to terrify you with my letters. It's not out of a desire to terrify you that I'm so bold in my letters. I'm coming to you with meekness and gentleness. And he explains the reason that he's bold at times, the reason that he uses powerful language at times. He says in verse 2 of the next chapter we'll look at, chapter 11, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. He says, the reason that I get bold, the reason that I'm so passionate in my letters is because I'm your spiritual father. You're like a daughter to me. I planted the church in Corinth. There was nothing there, no gospel ministry, no Christians. It was through my ministry that you were given new birth. And so you're like a daughter to me. And if you are like me and have a daughter, you will know the passion that he feels to protect this church. He says, I have a godly jealousy for you. I've promised you to Jesus. I want you to be pure. And so he gets worked up. It's true. But it's not because he wants to terrify them. It comes from a heart of gentleness, humility, lowliness. And so they've said he's inconsistent. They also say he boasts about his authority. In verse 8, For if I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not tearing you, for tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. He says, even if it's true that I'm, I boast in my authority, even if it's true that I'm appealing to my authority, I won't be put to shame because I'm using the authority that God gave me to build you up, not tear you down. There's a big difference between leveraging authority for the good of people and leveraging it for their destruction. He wants to protect them. And even then, the authority that he's appealing to is not his own authority. It's derivative. It's been given to him by God himself. This is not Paul appealing to them, arguing on the basis of his inherent authority, his his power, his giftedness, his history. It's only on the basis of what God has given him. When, when Jesus knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus and took him from being a persecutor of Christians to a missionary, it was then that Jesus gave him the authority that he's exercising now. And he says in verse 17 to 18, So let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. This isn't about me, he says. It's not, there's no value in me commending myself to you. It's the fact that the Lord has commended me that matters. So they say he's inconsistent. They say he boasts about his authority. And they say he's unimpressive in person. 
This is a personal attack, an ad hominem. He says in verse 8, in, in uh, verse 10, For it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak, and his public speaking amounts to nothing. You know, we've talked about in the Greek culture of the time, there was a whole lot of weight put on the physical appearance of a person. You see this in Greek literature from the first century, the, the kind of heroes that they have, the gods that they have, they're all impressive in, in physical appearance and in, in their ability to speak. That was a huge thing for the Greek. Uh, the the, rhetoric, the rhetorician was held in high esteem. The person who could go around and speak well could make a good living off it. And it's not so dissimilar from our own culture today when it comes to this kind of thing. They say his, his public speaking amounts to nothing and his physical presence is weak. I don't know how you imagine Paul, but I kind of get... The point, right? He doesn't strike me as some kind of six foot six Hercules kind of character. In fact, we have from antiquity, from a, an apocryphal uh, writing called the Acts of Paul and Thecla, we have this description of him. It says, uh, translated, Paul of a low stature, bald on the head, crooked thighs, handsome legs. So, <laughs> <laughs> he's got that going for him he, he does not skip leg day uh, handsome legs hollow eyed had a crooked nose full of grace for sometimes he appeared as a man sometimes he had the countenance of an angel so he's low of stature he's a short guy he's bald he's got crooked thighs though handsome legs uh, hollow eyed crooked nose and it's this that his opponents are attacking now. They're not content just to attack his character. Now they're attacking his persona. They're attacking his appearance. And so I've, uh, I've seen this kind of accusation, as funny as it is to think about with Paul. It's, it's an accusation that I think has ruined and aborted the ministry of many. I've seen it in our own church. People, when asked to participate in a ministry, um, they exclude themselves from it. They disqualify themselves from it on the basis of their appearance or of their gifts. So I could never lead a church service because I, I don't speak like this or that person. Or I, don't, I just don't look like the kind of person who'd be a leader. I see it in my, my, my own experience. It's it's this, the, the sin of comparison. I have committed the sin of comparison constantly in my own life. One of my best friends is Guy Mason. You might have heard of him because he is the, the, the founding, planting pastor and movement leader of City on a Hill Church, one of the biggest Anglican churches in Australia, churches all around the uh, eastern seaboard of this great nation and um and just guy is uh such an impressive person i've known him for i don't know nearly 20 years now and i just do not cease to be impressed by him 
And it's not just because he's a great leader. He's, he's one of the best leaders I've ever met or worked with. Uh, he's like devilishly good looking. <laughs> like, it's just, it's not fair how good looking he is. Um, and and he, he, he combines that with just incredible charisma. He is totally self-aware and absolutely engaging the people that he is conversing with. He's, a, he's great at pastoral care. He's not just an upfront guy. He's great at speaking and listening and praying for people. And oh, it's getting me angry just thinking about it. We normally hate these people, right? But I, I love this guy. Um, and he's incredibly smart, just to make it worse. Incredibly smart. Um, and I, over the years, these last 15, 20 years, have found myself constantly comparing me, myself to him. Comparing my preaching to his. Comparing my leadership to his. Comparing my church to his. And it cripples this sin of comparison cripples us. And Paul just says, I won't do it. I won't play that game. He says in verse 12, For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. Paul's not going to play that game. He's not going to get into the comparison game. He's not going to start slinging stones back at his opponents based on their appearance or their capacities. Paul understands that he is who he is by the grace of God. Paul, in all of his strengths and weaknesses, he's not perfect. He never claims to be. He knows who he is. He knows who God has made him to be. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1, this is what he says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, sorry. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He says, by God's grace, I am what I am. And even the successes that I've had were, were not just down to my hard work, but by the grace of God that was working through me. I am what I am. And so they say he's inconsistent. They say he boasts about his authority they say he's unimpressive in person. And then finally they say he's overextending himself. Let's read verse 13 to 16. We, however, will not boast beyond our measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as if we had not reached you, since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ. We are not boasting beyond measure about other people's labours. On the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged, 
so that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you without boasting about what has already been done in someone else's area of ministry. So it seems like the accusation was leveled at him that he's overreaching, he's overextending himself, he's going into areas, geographical areas, where other people are ministering or where he shouldn't go. He should stay in his lane, essentially, is what they're saying to him. It's a kind of gospel turf war that's going on in Corinth and in that region at this time. I've seen this happen. It's just grieved me so much when I've seen people wanting to protect their patch from other gospel ministry coming in. I saw it recently when, uh, in the Anglican church where a, a church was wanting to plant a new ministry, exciting, new, passion-filled, gospel-centered ministry in an area of Melbourne, and the reaction from some of the local Anglican priests to this new ministry coming in was just so disappointing to see. They were appealing to parish boundaries, right? These, these historical boundaries marked out for parishes that this is your patch, this is your parish. And they were saying, they can't come in here. This is our parish. As if more gospel ministry could be any hindrance to anyone. That seems to be what's going on here. But Paul says in verse 13 to 16, not only did we plant the church in Corinth, like we were there first. If it's going to come down to a turf war, no one was here before us. We, start, we came with the gospel First of all, but he says, not only that, but we want to go further. We want to expand further. We want to take the gospel into regions that have, have no gospel ministry in them. This is the, the passion of the missionary, the passion of the apostle, the passion of the evangelist. We want the gospel to go further. As he says, as we see your faith increase, we want more regions to be taken with the gospel. We want you, as your faith increases, to be called into missionary service. And of course, this is at the heart of anyone who's involved in gospel-centered ministry. So they say he's inconsistent. They say he boasts about his authority. They say he's unimpressive in person. And they say he's overextending himself. And you know what occurred to me this past week? Those things that they are accusing Paul of, are the very things that Jesus was accused of. That throughout his life and ministry, Jesus' enemies, those who sought to cancel him, to deplatform him, leveled the same accusations at him. They said he's inconsistent when he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, when he enjoyed the company of those who were known to be unholy, ungodly people. The religious leaders of the day would come to him and say, you call yourself a prophet? We saw you preaching in the, in the temple and now you're hanging out with these people? He's inconsistent. They accused him on the basis of his authority, they frequently said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you saying these things? Calling into question the source of his authority, which like Paul, was from God himself, Jesus, God in human flesh. 
They accused him of being unimpressive. We read in Isaiah 53, the prophecy about Jesus that states that he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was an unimpressive person. They had a go at him for the, for the hometown that he came from. Can anything good come from Nazareth? They undermined him on the basis of his appearance and of his origin, that he's unimpressive. And they accused him of overreaching. In fact, long before Jesus was ever crucified, he was nearly murdered. And it came when he said to the religious leaders that the gospel, the good news, would push outside of the realms of Judaism. It would push outside the realms of Jerusalem. And in response, they tried to throw him off a cliff for having the temerity of saying that God's grace is going to push outside of the realms of God's people. And so all of these things are being leveled at Paul. These things that may well be leveled at you are the same things that were leveled at Jesus himself. And so, friends, we need to expect opposition. We need to expect to be attacked on the basis of our public Christian confession. In fact, Jesus himself said that this would happen. He said, remember the word I spoke to you, John 15, 2. A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul knew this, and so when he was writing to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, In fact, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Fact. And so in all of these accusations, these attacks, these attempts to deplatform, Paul simply sees himself as walking in the footsteps of Jesus. So he says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Friends, we don't know when the attacks will come. We don't know the nature of the accusations, but we ought to expect that they're coming for us. And so in the meantime, let us pray. Let us pray that like Jesus, like Paul, like so many Christians who have gone before us, William Wilberforce among others, that we might be able to stand firm on the confession of our good news in the gospel, that we might be able to run to a God who is unchanging, whose love for us does not shake and shift with the times. Let's pray together now that God would prepare us well to stand firm in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you know all things. You know in our hearts our desire to stay true to our confession of the gospel. 
And you also know how hard it is when friends or family, co-workers or the public turn against us, level accusations against us, seek to deplatform us or sever relations with us. And so I pray that you would be preparing us now to stand firm, that you would be preparing us now not to be so invested in the opinion of those around us, not to be so prone to comparing those, comparing ourselves to those around us, but rather that we would find comfort and solace and security in knowing that we are your children, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Help us to trust in you in the good times and when opposition comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.